0: Hello! Welcome to Fairy and Fantasy Class number 12. Today we prepare to join Arthur and his knights in wondering just who the heck that huge green guy is. But first, a few words about you, Catastrophe. Okay, good morning. So as I promised at the end of last class, I wanted to start today not by jumping straight into Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, but instead looking back for a moment on the four stories that we've begun with, and especially paying attention to their endings. Because there's, there is a trend in their endings that I want to make sure that, that we draw attention to before we move on, especially before we move on to Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. Um, notice that the ends of these stories don't just have happy endings, they do have happy endings, but they don't just have happy endings. There's, there's a particular sort of trend in the happy endings that we can see. Uh, so we take, for instance, our two loathly these stories, right, that we've just finished. Uh, Dame Ragnall has a kind of two-fold, there's like a two-movement happy ending at the end of that story, right? Movement one, number one is when Sir Gawain rolls over in bed, right, gritting his teeth... to suddenly find that he is in in bed with the most beautiful woman he's ever seen... instead of the ugliest, right? That's sort of step one. But it's not done there. He still is now told, but this isn't necessarily what it seems. At least you're not going to be able to have this full-time. And then he has to choose. Of course, then after, he makes his choice. And she says, congratulations, I'm going to be happy full-time... And he realizes that that difficult choice, which he gave up on and was too hard for him to decide, he now doesn't have to make at all. And that's sort of the second and final fulfillment of this ending, which is quite, to him, unexpected and happy. The Wife of Bath's tale, because she doesn't turn beautiful prior to, uh, to his choice, sort of combines both of those things into one moment. Um, and when he makes his choice, she's still ugly. And so far as he knows, she may remain ugly. In fact, remember, again, an aspect of that that we didn't even emphasize, when she gives him the choice, would you have me devastatingly gorgeous or an unfaithful or ugly and faithful... Um, You know, maybe he's willing to believe her about the moral choice, but the devastating beauty is still entirely theoretical at that time, as is her ability to become entirely beautiful. In fact, uh, one can imagine that he might be in some level of confusion there at the choice itself. What what, what do you mean, have you devastatingly beautiful but unfaithful? You're the ugliest woman I've ever seen. Um, So, again, he's... That is, again, it's an entirely theoretical thing. Anyway when he makes the choice and she says, cast up the curtain, right? That is, let in some light because they're in a curtain bed. Um, cast up the curtain and, and, you know, say who it is. Um, that's n- then this moment of the happy ending and when his Herit is bathed in a bath of bliss. Um, and, uh, and as I said last time, off we go. Now, Notice in both of these endings, both of these endings are in some sense a response to the action by the knight. Both Sir Gawain, both halves of Sir Gawain's happy ending come in response to his actions. The first time when he decides, despite my own revulsion, I'm going to turn uh, and do my husbandly duty by you. And the second time when he makes the choice. And of course, our ex-rapist knight, uh, you know, when he does in one swoop make his choice. But at the same time, these happy endings are not simply a reward. Congratulations, you have done well. You are being compensated for your virtue uh, by a happy ending. It's not, it doesn't just work like that. Neither one of them have actually earned what they get. Both of them are receiving more than they could possibly have guessed, more even than they're kind of putting themselves in for by their actions. Um, and... Both of them seem to be... The the reactions that we see in both of them and the kind of happiness that we get in their endings, even though, as we saw, Sir Gawain's is short-term. Nevertheless, it's a kind of happiness that they were never expecting. Sir Gawain was reconciled to being unhappy in his marriage, and he thought that a small price to pay for Arthur's life, but he was willing to do it. Um, Our rapist knight, of course, thought that he himself was now doomed, I don't know whether he thought this was perhaps a fit punishment. He doesn't seem to be thinking in those directions. But, uh, but anyway, this certainly was beyond his expectations. In Sir Launfal, we get the purest example of this kind of happy ending. Uh, Launfal receives a happy ending, which is not merited at all. He's done nothing to, 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 to deserve it, even if we think uh, the knights in the woefully weighty stories have he hasn't. In fact, he's demerited it. If anything, he has. He was first given this gift out of nowhere, little muddy, decrepit, abandoned him in the woods, and you know, Triamor appears to him and takes him in and loves him, and then he blows it. Right, he breaks his vow, he violates the prohibition. He deserves never to see her again. And he knows it. He doesn't contest it when Githra and the, the horse and the gold and everything are gone and she doesn't come to him when he asks. He knows that he's deserved what he gets. Her appearance, therefore, at the court, her act of generosity and love and humility uh, is really quite breathtaking at the end of that poem. Not only does she forgive his violation of faith, but she herself in a sense, transgresses exactly the boundary that she commanded him not to transgress. Don't, don't out me to the court, right? Don't talk about me. Don't boast about me. I'm not going to appear in front of everybody. Remember the kind of privacy that fairies all seem to be into so far in the, in the stories that we've seen. You only meet them out in the middle of the woods, usually when you're by yourself. Um, and what we have there at the end of Sir Launfal is Lady Triamore displaying herself to public view. I mean, she, even when she gets off her horse, she like turns around so they can all behold her. Right? I mean, she is she is putting herself um, out out on display. Um, that's you know just for his sake, just to save him from execution, or again, sort of ironically as we describe, from banishment. Um, and the. The reaction to which we are kind of prompted. That is, we, we see his reaction. His reaction to her when he sees her coming in the distance um, and recognizes her his running to follow her, the way in which the entire climactic movement of the poem, that is the trial in Arthur's court, is he going to be acquitted or is he not going to be acquitted? And the speed and thoroughness with which he just abandons all of that Who cares what happens at the end of the trial? He is out of there and following her to ferry, right? And that's all that matters. Um, the, the judgment is a complete side note at that point. Um, it's, I... I find the ending to Landfall's story really very beautiful. In Sir Orfeo, we see a similar movement too, but it's different. At least it's not, I think, quite where we might expect it. The whole story to that point sounds like the big deal is going to be his final reunion with his wife, right? I mean, the story starts with the fairies taking her away, and then he's really sad, and he goes and he finds her, and he gets her back from the fairy king. And this is, again, coming back to the discussion we had about that a while ago, this strange kind of silence about the reunion with Herodotus, which we would have expected to be the big deal. That's where we would expect the trumpets and the soliloquies and, and everything else, and we don't get it, right? It happens in a line. Where do we get the happy ending? Where do we get that sudden turn, that, uh, that sudden wondrous revelation? When his steward is, it tends to be completely loyal and you know, awesome. Yeah, yeah. The happy ending comes when the steward throws himself at Orfeo's feet, right? Um, yeah, and I think that's that's really that's a really kind of interesting thing. That's that's the moment um, where the happy ending is, is placed, where that where that where that sort of unexpected rush occurs. Um, here, in talking about these happy endings, I want to I want to uh, I want to read a little bit. This is from J.R.R. Tolkien's On Fairy Stories. uh, His terminology describing this uh, is, well, I was going to say it's the best that I know of. It's the only that I know of. Um, He talks about, Tolkien talks in that essay about the consolation of the happy ending. He says, almost I would venture to assert that all complete fairy stories must have it. At least I would say that as tragedy is the true form of drama, its highest function but the opposite is true of fairy story. Since we do not appear to possess a word that expresses this opposite, that is the opposite of tragedy, comedy is not the opposite of tragedy, it's just a very different thing from tragedy. Um, he says, since we do not appear to possess a word that expresses this opposite, I will call it eucatastrophe. The catastrophic tale is the true form of fairy tale and its highest function. The consolation of fairy stories, the joy of the happy ending, or more correctly, of the good catastrophe, that's a literal translation of you catastrophe, the word he's just made up, the sudden joyous turn, for there is no true end to any fairy tale. This joy, which is one of the things which fairy stories can produce supremely well, is not essentially escapist nor fugitive. In its fairy tale or other world setting, it is a sudden and miraculous grace never to be counted on to recur. That's his description. It serves both as a description of this, this subset of happy ending that we see in fairy tales and that I think that we can see in all four of the ones that we've read so far, this, this eucatastrophic turn that happens at the end. Um, and, and I would point to Tolkien's theory here that this is an essential aspect of fairy story. Not that he's saying that you know if it doesn't have this, it's not a fairy story. It needs to be thrown out. But he says it is the high, just as you can have other kinds of drama besides tragedy. But he argues tragedy is sort of the ultimate, the highest function of drama. So the u-catastrophic ending is the highest, is the highest function of fairy stories. Keep this in mind when we get to the end of Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. Sir Gowan and the Green Knight is possibly the most famous fairy story in the English literary tradition. It is one of the great works of medieval literature. Um, It's author who was a brilliant and remarkable poet. We have no idea who he was. Um, He seems to have written three other poems that is in the one solitary manuscript in which this poem survives. There are also three other poems um, which sound like they were probably written by the same person. They have many of the same techniques. Um, all three of the other poems in that collection, by the way, are uh, Christian poems. That is very explicitly on Christian themes. Uh, two are sort of virtue poems. That is, one is called Cleanness, uh, cleanness and the other is called Patience, um, Patience. And both of them consist entirely or almost entirely of retellings of Bible stories in verse. Patience is the story of Jonah, uh, which if you've read Jonah, you might perhaps not expect. And uh, cleanness uh, is sort of a pastiche of several. I mean, he's talking about cleanness. That is sort of moral purity uh, is what he means by that, it seems. Um, And he does several stories. Um, The story of uh, Belshazzar's impious feast uh, that is uh, the story from daniel with the with the with the handwriting on the wall uh which daniel interprets um that are being a, a bad example a, a counter example of moral purity um anyway uh and then the 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 third poem is the third other poem that is is pearl which i think is one of the most exquisitely crafted poems i've ever read in the english language in any period it is unbelievable um, he manages both alliteration and rhyme, as well as a really complex stanza structure uh, and a really precise pattern of stanzas within the overall uh, poem. Um, it's, it's, I mean, if you're into poetic structure, read Pearl. Uh, short of Dante, I know no poetry more remarkably crafted than Pearl. Um, Pearl is, the, is a poem about the mourning of a father whose daughter has died. Um, he falls asleep at her graveside where he has come to weep again. And uh, in his, he has a vision in his sleep. And uh, in his vision, he sees her on the other side of her. There's a river flowing between them. And he meets his young daughter with whom he has a long conversation. And she tells him certain things that it were good for him to know. Um anyway, it's a it's a it's a remarkable thing. And then also Sir Gown and the Green Knight, which you know, I tell you this in part because I think you should know, but also because I think sometimes <laughs> Sir Gown and the Green Knight is much more famous than the other three poems written by this dude. And I use the word do generically, I, it's, we don't have any idea who this person was. Could be male or female. Probably male, but that's just a stereotypical guess. We have no idea. Um, with the other, th- I mean, the the fact that Pro is told from the father's perspective does kind of suggest a masculine author. But I don't think, I mean, I don't think we must read that autobiographically. So I wouldn't like stick to that absolutely. Anyway. Um, Sometimes people will read this manuscript and come to Sir Gowan and the Green Knight and say, okay, now now for something completely different. I'm not sure, actually, at the end of the day it's completely different from the other poems. But before we dig into Sir Gowan and the Green Knight in earnest, however, I want to talk about the translation. Uh, And not just about the translation, but about your reading of the book that I have assigned. Um, The reason about... 85% of the reason that I have assigned you this book um, is that it has the Middle English on the left page and the modern translation on the right-hand page. Um, The reason I've not given you this poem just in Middle English, as I did the first four poems, is that it's hard. Um, The Gowan poet wrote in a very different dialect, um, a more, you know, uh, rustic dialect uh it's much harder middle english uh than any of the things that we've read previous to this and i just i actually think it not quite fair you know i say in my intro to middle english like you know the key to reading middle english is just don't be intimidated it's not as hard as it looks this is pretty hard like i'm not gonna lie Uh, so so i just i thought it would be a little unkind and a little pointless just to kind of set you off to see with this but But now here comes the big but. But I want to be talking about the Middle English poem. I still want the Middle English poem to be the thing that you are primarily primarily reading, okay? And what our discussion will primarily be about. I like the fact that you have a modern English translation on the side, which should I hope help even if it does not always help on a word-for-word basis. That is, if you're looking at the Middle English and you say, I don't understand what that word is at all, and you look over to the right-hand side, well, the line over there might not help you know exactly what that word is because he's gone in a different direction with that line. So it's not always going to help in that way, in the way that like your marginal notes will uh, in the Chaucer edition or whatever. But, but it still will help you get the sense so that you're, you're at least, even if you... Remain perhaps unenlightened about the particular word, um, you will still be able to kind of get the sense of what's going on and will at least allow you to continue without just sort of being completely confused. Um, Now, what this means is there are, I don't know, several options of how you read this book when you're holding it in your hand, right? One would be the path of least resistance that is, hey, look, modern English, right? I can just read the book like this. That's pretty cool, right? I don't have to look over here at all. And it goes by really fast because I'm only reading every other page. Um, don't do that. Don't do that. And the reason I want you not to do that is that I'm not, or at least I, I hope I am not, at least I'm going very firmly to attempt not to be simply all, like, snobbish and snooty about the translation and be like, oh, this this modern thing is just, oh, it is <laughs> not quite the thing compared to the medieval poem. Uh, I, I'm going to try not to do that. The moral of the story is that a translation is, it, it, it's a different story that he's telling. Um, a translator is not a slave. I mean, they're not, like, at least if they're any good at all, there is a, a translator is a storyteller, not like you know, a, a, an online translation engine to just kind of take the, uh, take the words and the lines and, and, and attempt mechanically to give you modern English equivalents of them. Um, no translator does that. No translator should do that. What would, on, what a, what would be the point? Just write notes then if that's, what sh- if that's what you're trying to do. A translator is doing a different thing. Um, I've, as a Tolkien person, I've talked a lot about the Tolkien films. People are always asking me about the Peter Jackson films. And the thing that I've said many times, and I'm sure will continue to say hundreds of more times before I die, is that one has to remember that a film adaptation of a book is a different story from the book. You cannot, you should not, it's silly to expect the book on screen. And if there's something on screen which is different from the book, either because it's added or subtracted, that therefore it is incorrect because when you check it by the book, you can see the errors that have been made. I really sympathize with this perspective from people who love books and see movies that are made based on books. Like I can completely say, and goodness knows, especially when I was in high school, I was probably the most insufferable purist that I've ever met. But I'm really glad the Tolkien films didn't come out then. I, I would have been a complete disaster, I'm sure. Uh, even more insufferable than I doubtless was already. But... Again, they're different stories, right? Peter Jackson is not telling Tolkien stories. He's telling his own story. It is based on Tolkien's story. We can see some interesting similarities and differences. Many of the characters are kind of similar. And it's fine. It's a different story. It's a different telling. Just as when you read medieval literature, you see people love to retell stories. The story of the Trojan War is told lots and lots and lots of times. And you know what? That's okay. And, 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 you know somebody's version is not wrong like when ovid is describing the trojan war and does it very differently from homer and we see very different characters acting in very different ways ovid isn't getting homer wrong he's just telling a different story right and it's interesting to look at both of them the problem is we might not think in the same way about a translation but I want you to—I want to encourage you to think in exactly that same way. It's not as extreme as with a trans, you know—a a translation from book to film, but it's still, I would say, a very similar kind of process. Um, this Simon Armitage is telling a story, which is related and related very closely to the original Middle English story, but it isn't the same story. He must make choices. Every time he translates a word, he must make choices between different possible meanings and sub-meanings of the Middle English words. And he's got to make his make sense, you know, so that one can read it from beginning to end, and it will work as a story and be interesting. And there are certain stories that he wants to tell. Again, that's perfectly fine. Absolutely okay. And I like Simon Armitage's poem. I think it's cool. Um, I think it sounds nice. I think he tells a good story. I think it's fine. But it isn't the same story as the medieval story. And it's the medieval one that I want to be focusing on and talking about in this class. Um, let me give a little illustration of what, I, what I'm talking about uh, in, in less sort of abstract terms about this kind of, this sort of translation or this difference in story. Uh, look at page 34 this is the court, Arthur's court's reaction to the green knight. And I'm going to start on the, the very last line on this page, line 237. All studio that there stood and stalked him ne'er with all the wonder of the, of the world, what a work shoulder. For fail sellies had they seen, but such never are. For thee for fountain and fiery the folk there hit damit. Okay, so if we look at the Middle English, what is the Middle English saying? They're all staring. They're all amazed, right? Arthur's quarter, all amazed. And they're, they're, they're coming near him, which is, an, which is interesting, right? They're amazed not in a I'm backing away in terror sense, but in a I'm creeping together to get a closer look at this thing sense, right? They're stalking him nearer. They'd seen... Many fell cellia they'd seen many strange things before but such never ara, but never such as this before Ara means before ever. So what do they conclude? For thee for fantum and fiery the folk there hit diamond. it. They have a quick diagnosis of this huge, entirely green guy, very richly dressed with jewels and ribbons and things. Okay, they say, all right, quick, two quick responses here. One of two things, probably. What is it? A ghost ghost fairy. Fountum or fiery? And fountain, I think, is not ghost in our modern sense. Not ghost in the sense of spirit of dead person, necessarily. But, like, illusion. This is a vision of some kind. Probably conjured by fiery, by, 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 by magic. And not just magic, fiery, Fairy magic. Remember, that's the same word used, it seems, in a similar sense to to what we saw in Sir Orpheo. Remember when Herodotus was taken away, right, by by fairy, by magic? Um, This is their response. Now, look at Armitage's translation. Some stood and stared, then stepped a little closer, drawn near to the knight to know his next move. They'd seen some sights, but this was something special—a miracle or magic, or so they imagined. Now, he's clearly talking about the same thing. I—I—I I, I, I like the translation. I think it's good. I—I li- I really enjoy Armitage's alliteration. I think he does a great job with it. It, 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 it reads really well, um, and it works really well aloud, too. It's wonderful to listen to read aloud. It's great, but look what he does with their reaction, with their diagnosis, rather. There are two major differences I would point to there in line 240. A miracle or magic or so they imagined. Magic. All right. Yeah. Miracle? What's happened here? Um, he adapted it so that we would be able to understand a modern context. Because if he translated it as Phantom, we'd think, oh, it's somebody's ghost. Right. Good. Yeah, it... Phantom does mean something different in the modern world. The word fairy used in this way, he couldn't use at all. I mean, it wouldn't even make sense grammatically to modern people who think, only, who think of the word fairy only as a noun referring to that kind of being, usually looking like Tinkerbell, right? So, I mean, if they said it would, it would be nonsense, I think, it would be a couple different levels of nonsense to say, oh, it's fairy. Uh, grammatically, that wouldn't even seem to parse, I think, to a modern person. So, sure, he can't just use that word. And miracle, he seems to be using, I, at least I think he's using, in the fairly generic modern sense of, like, something supernatural, something above the order of the normal is going on here, right? Not necessarily miracle in the, in the theological sense, which is very different from fairy. I also feel like miracle has a, um, like, good or um, virtuous meaning. So, like, it's a big angel that's handing out right yeah even if we don't think about it in the in a strictly theological sense like ah this is a wonder performed by god yet you're right there's still even when modern people use the word miracle in a pretty generic sense to mean something extraordinary and so it's still usually good i mean nobody uses the word miracle of a bad thing right so i agree it does change the force of it arthur's court is not at all certain about this guy right i mean he might be he certainly looks pretty dangerous and could be and and, and, you know if he is their their first thought this guy this clearly like you know immediately they're all like fairy right but if he's not a fairy he could be easily a, a demon at least as well as an angel so we're not at all certain about this at all um whereas i agree miracle does give it a much more positive spin but even notice the end of the line or so they imagined what does the middle english say Jordan? The full theorem, which it means okay, they made a decision, but even if our temporal theory is but uh they made decisions we have to find our imaginary because they've got a pretty good idea of what's going on. Yeah, they're not imagining anything. So they judged. They've judged this and 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 and, and a rational judgment it is under the circumstances. Mac, what are you gonna say? I was actually with the reading just Okay Okay. Okay, good. Yeah, so now, all right, we might say, okay, perhaps we're making too much of this. Okay, sure, he did, you know, again, he's got good reason to not just say fairy exactly as it says. You know, maybe, but, but maybe, I, you know, we'd be making too much of it to say, well, see, he seems to be downplaying the fairy element in the story. I mean, look, you know, he was alliterating on M's, you know, he had magic, he needed another M, miracle works, that makes sense. You know, imagined, too, he's also alliterating on the M there, so... Maybe it's just, you know, I mean, hey, you write an alliterative poem if you've got a problem with it, right? That's pretty hard to do. So, all right. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's just a coincidence. I, I don't think so, actually. Um, go back to the introduction. Page 11. This is uh, Armitage's introduction. Near the bottom of the page, third to last line, he says, The poem is also a ghost story, a thriller, a romance, an adventure story, and a morality tale. A, a ghost story? Wait a second. In what sense is it a ghost story? Now I'm like, OK, well, maybe he means that kind of generically, like something eerie and spooky. Though I would still say a ghost story is a very different genre from a fairy story. I mean, we're going in a totally different direction if you're thinking in terms of ghost story. But again, like, you know, whatever, he's making a list. Maybe he's just kind of tossing that off, eerie, spooky, whatever. But he goes back to it in the next page. Let's see, about uh, half of the way down that paragraph there. The knight who throws down the challenge at Camelot is both ghostly and real. Supernatural, yes, but also flesh and blood. He is something in the likeness of ourselves. And he is not purple or orange or blue with yellow stripes. He, he's green. You see, it's the significance of the greenness we're getting at here. Um, Gawain must negotiate a deal with a man who wears the colors of the leaves and the fields. He must strike an honest bargain with this manifestation of nature, and his future depends on it. Now, there are fine reasons for associating the green knight with nature. Like, I mean, we'll look at that, and, and that's, I think, perfectly viable. But notice what he's doing a similar thing here in this introduction. First of all, he used the word ghostly again, making me think it wasn't just an accidental thing, that he is thinking of this more as a ghostly kind of supernatural thing, which, again, is very different from fairy story. And to me, fairies are really conspicuously absent in this paragraph. He is something in the likeness of ourselves. Uh, uh, Yeah, like... um, fairies for instance uh but 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 it never goes there instead he wants to talk about manifestations of nature and we want to do like a symbolic thing which again like whatever uh, that's that's that that may work that that, that that may be cool i merely posit we can see from his introduction as well uh, he never talks he never mentions fairy or fairy tale fairy tales or fairy stories once in this entire introduction he does, he does not seem, if we can judge by this introduction and then also by his translation itself, to really think about the story in these terms at all. Um, in, in, it, I couldn't help but, and he's not like saying this himself, he was quoting other people, talking about scholars who claim to have found exactly like the, the real castle uh, that Sir Gawain goes to and I'm like it's in fairy dude I mean it's you're not, you're not keep looking you're not going to find it I mean well, whatever um but but anyway so it's it's it seems I mean I, my conclusion on reading his introduction is just that's simply not how he's thinking of this story now again that's perfectly fine you can think of the story in different ways but remember this is all an illustration of my overall point the English, the modern English translation is a different story from the original one. And I want to be looking at the original one. Yeah, Jordan? I think it goes story is good in
1: We We uh, know the bit about the ghost story. Which is, which the next sentence is, for one who
0: is better than the other, it is also a myth, which is pretty scornful of the whole concept of mythology, in my opinion. I think he's showing up. I originally thought there was a, was a slight sense of this. I'm now convinced it was pretty overwhelming. Uh, <laughs> no, I think he's a victim of a modern bias against the fairy tales. He a child, he the so he it a ghost, which is I I, mean, yeah. I, I I think it's more okay for ghosts, for it's adults to be ghosts. ghosts. Yeah, yeah, well, Shakespeare has fairies, too, so uh, that could work either way. Yeah, Mac? The uh, he's misusing the word, yeah. uh, well bit in the no, I mean, it, now there, of course, there are different technical senses. I mean, of course, the way that most people use the word myth is just to mean a, a thing which is untrue. <laughs> right, right, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, neither in the... So, yeah, there's the, there's the really colloquial and exceptionally limiting... Uh, use of the word myth, which again I'm willing to dismiss. Then there's the higher use of the word myth in the sense of like it is a myth, like a religious story, essentially, is how the word myth is sometimes used there. Like when we're talking about the mythologies of ancient people, we're referring to a particular subset of their stories. the, the way I've always heard myth defined as as a legendary and all those other synonyms, is it a myth? has to explain how came to be within. Sure. It is certainly a trend that we see in these ancient mythologies, right? Um, a mythology taken, you know, as a collective is a way that this group of people explained the world, right? So, yeah, so you can see myths working in that way. Um, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis talked about myth in a broader sense, um, in a different sense, anyway, um, he i i kind of agree jordan i don't i'm not i don't even really know what he means when he uses the word myth there um and i also don't know what armitage would say if you asked him why don't you ever talk about fairies you know the poem you translated does um fairy story is an obvious genre that you could point to uh um, why don't you, exactly? And I'm not sure. I'm not sure if he thought about it and rejected it for fear of, uh, you know, what, or if it never even occurred to him. That also seems to me actually kind of possible. I don't know. Um, but I mean, I'm not, I mean, we're not here to put Simon Armitage on the couch, so I don't, you know, I, I don't know. We need to speculate too much about it, but Yeah. Actually, it's kind of interesting because you could also say because he's translating it into a modern context he's trying to make it more fitting for a general audience to read and a general audience really thinks of fairy tales as children's stories so in that sense he could just be avoiding saying it because he wants to get them the proper picture. Yeah, yeah. Think about it as children's stories if they think about it at all. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. no, I mean, I agree. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily I, criticize him for this idea. Um, he's certainly right that, well, if this is what he's doing or saying, he would certainly be right to think that modern audiences would have a particular reaction, which I'm suspecting he would find undesirable. Um, and what's more, it would seem strange. I mean, if you said, okay, people, are you ready for a fairy tale? Then even those people who were interested in such a thing would read this and be like, uh not what I was expecting <laughs> when I sat down to read a fairy tale. Um, anyway. The conclusion is the left side of the page. Keep your eyes on the left side of the page, permitting yourself the occasional decorous glance to the right-hand side of the page. Um, and it's okay to read it, but I, I, you know, I'm you not going to side of the page is our chief concern now i want to draw brief attention to the very opening of the poem this is something that would send some very clear cues to a medieval audience it might seem odd at first that the story begins with the burning of troy It's like, why do we care about Troy? What does that have to do with anything? What it does is establishes a context. This is, first of all, let me emphasize, a a historical context. Medieval people, medieval English people seem to believe in the historical, they believe in the historical existence of the Trojan War. They didn't necessarily buy every detail of every story, but they certainly believe the Trojan War happened, more or less like it was described. The events, all of the events that he describes are history. And more than just history, these things are English history. English history because they tell the progression of English empire. You have Troy. Troy was the great city. Troy fell. But Troy survived because Aeneas leaves Troy and takes with him the tradition of Troy. And where do he and his descendants end up? Rome. And Rome grows from the ashes of Troy. So what Troy was, now Rome has become. It is the next step uh, in this, what the Latin phrase that was used uh, uh, in the Middle Ages, the translatio empiri, the the translation of empire. uh, From Troy, now to Rome. And then, from a descendant of Romulus we get Felix Felix Brutus. Fortunate, happy Brutus. Right? Brutus, who comes to England, and founds the land, and that's why it's called Bruton, sort of. <laughs> Seriously, that's what, that's where they said the name Britain eventually comes from, was from Brutus. It's fine. And uh, anyway, so he's the founder of Britain. He is the he is the, the like the, the the he is the Aeneas of the British. So then. England rises from the ashes of Rome, you see? And we get King Arthur and King Arthur's court. So King Arthur's court... So w- w- the, the very clear line that gets drawn... And this is not news to anybody. This is, this, 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 this is tradition that we, that we medieval English people all know. Troy, Rome, Arthur's court. Now, let's go to Arthur's court. So you know, we've had some implications... Uh, through the other Arthurian romances that we've been reading, that this is, you know, Arthur's court is the greatest human court. Here we get explicit historical cues. Remember the function of Arthur's court in this ancient and historical tradition. We are prompted to be thinking of Arthur and his court as this culmination, almost, of human history. Certainly this great tradition and inheritance. Therefore, this is what's behind, say, the mockery of the green knight. This is why he talks the way that he does. If you look at line 309, for instance, this is, his, this is when uh, you know, he makes his challenge and nobody answers him. On page 40. What, is this Arthur's house? Quoth the Hathelvena, that all the Rus' frenes of Thurream so many? What, is this Arthur's house? The great, legendary Arthur's house. Everybody has heard of you and your fame. You're the greatest anywhere, right? Troy, Rome, Arthur. I'm a little disappointed. <laughs> I find myself underwhelmed by the great Arthur's court, right? This is, that's the whole, that's, that's the force of what he's evoking there. Another thing that I would just want briefly to contextualize, um, Arthur's tradition, um, which we see in other places as well, um, of not starting a feast until a marvel happens, um, when there 's a great feast, he will frequently hang out and wait until something cool happens, um, and then everybody can eat um, and, because uh, this happens on, on many in many different ways in many different occasions usually marvels um, oblige him uh, on these on these on these high feasts, although when he talks about it here it 's a little bit interesting. he also says he, he, he seems to open the possibility of hearing tales that is. Have somebody relate a story, so it 's not just uh, let 's sit banking on the fact that you know something something marvelous, something magical is going to happen uh, you know in the next couple hours before we all get really 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 hungry, and the food gets cold um, but but he also says you know that, that you know, someone devies me you know a tale that something but he but he insists something something that 's true he doesn 't just he I, I think he does not. He's not interested in fiction here. This is uh, page 26. We're told on line 91 that he, Thorch had no that he would never ate upon such a dare die, ere him devised were of some aventurous thing, an uncouth tale, of some mine marvile, that he might trawa, of Alderes, of Armes, of other aventures, other some sedge him besought of some sicker knicht to join with him in justing and jeopardy to lie, laid leaf for leaf, live uch on other, as fortune would falsen home the fire to have. So there are lots of options here that he would accept. Um, he be told about some some adventurous thing. Some uncouth tala uncouth means unknown, strange, new to him, tale of some Mine Marvaela, some marvelous feat that trawa notice, that he might believe in. Not not fiction. I hate to pick on Armitage. I keep saying, like, it's cool. And it is totally fine. But notice again what Armitage does with this. Some far-fetched yarn or outrageous fable, the tallest of tales, yet one ringing with truth. I, the tallest of tales, no. I mean, okay, ringing with truth, like he does sort of recognize, but no, I, he, it has to be a real thing, something he can believe in. Yes, it's supposed to be marvelous, but not out but not a fable. No. No, not quite. Again, but see that's that's so the Green Knight is this is the perfect solution. Huge green fellow comes into the court. And Arthur jokes about this afterwards, right? He's just picked up his head and written out and like, you know, his dismembered head has defied, you know, Gowan to come and cut off his head in a year. And, you know, he weaves, and there's, like, this awkward silence, right? And Arthur's like, so, guess we can eat now? <laughs> right? it's, it's a really fantastic moment. We actually see Arthur, and we're told that Arthur is, like, self-consciously yucking it up in order to smooth over, over the moment, especially for Guinevere. He's a little afraid Guinevere's going to freak out here, uh, So, you know, he's like, you know, so he's, he starts, you know, like joking with Gawain and uh, you've hewed enough Gawain, har, 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 put that ax (laughs) away and let's eat. Uh, Yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, so no, this certainly works. It certainly counts. Um, What stuff do you notice when the Green Knight comes in, the grand entrance of which we get a long description of the Green Knight? What do you notice? What kind of cues do we get there? Well, He is not wearing shoes. He's spurred his exercise. He's, he's, yes, he is not wearing shoes. I have no idea what to do with that. I'll just be honest with you. Of be connected to the earth from which he comes, Ooh. so he can't wear shoes. Oh, I like that. I like that. He's not wearing shoes. He's wearing socks. He's wearing socks. It's kind of gross. If they're made muddy. you don't be close to the earth. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. He wants to be close to the earth, but he thinks that being muddy is gross. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem. Right, he's green. Right. he doesn't want to be close to you. He just wants to be kind of near it. Right, right. Not in actual closet. He wants everybody out. He a platonic relationship. <Let> maybe <laughs> if they don't think yeah. she's making that <laughs> statement. Now that is plausible. Yes, yes. They were straight out of the like size 48 shoes or whatever it is that he wears. How tall is he, by the way? Really, really, 15. Very tall. But no, no. This is exactly. Are we talking? Are we talking 15 feet tall? You'll notice in the, on the, the homepage of the Blackboard page, I've put a little, uh, a little version of John Howe's painting of Sir Gowan confronting the Green Knight. This is the scene that happens at the end of the story and not here. Um, John Howe depicts the Green Knight as like 20 feet high or so. I don't think that can be right. First of all, Gawain would have needed like a stepladder and an axe twice as big as the one that, to, like, get through that neck. Uh, and secondly, he wields the same axe that the Green Knight brings in. And the axe wielded by the Green Knight in that painting has got to be 15 feet high and, like, you know, you know like an inch in, or like a foot in diameter. I mean, there's just, there's, no, it, that's not possible. The weight is just awesome. Yeah, yeah, well... Yeah, there's that, I guess. But no, I don't think he's quite so awesome as that. Um, I think it's entirely about his limiting Okay, that's a limiting factor. I agree, though that could be pretty big. So you know, I'm not sure how limiting that is. Um, he's described as it looks like he's half an Eton. He looks like a half giant, not a whole giant. 15 feet would be like a whole giant, I think. But we're, we're like demi-Etten mode here, not full Etten size. Um, going back to the clothes thing, I think something that was really important that was in here was that he has no helmet and no hauberk. Yes, hauberk, yeah, which means just armor. He's not, he's not wearing armor, and he's not... Uh, and I kind of... That's the one thing that I can think of that is sensible to do with the shoes, or the shoelessness of the Green Knight, it's sort of a more, an even more sort of extreme touch of, exa- Marta, exactly what you're pointing to. He's totally not armed for war. He's just, he's dressed nicely, but it's in, well, I mean, you remember Arthur was in Grena, uh when he was caught out in the woods by Sir Gromer Somerjure and not armed. He was in green, that is, he was hunting. He wasn't in as much green, of course, but anyway, he was still in. In, in hunting clothes. And I wonder if the shoelessness is sort of involved with that, too. It's like, hey, look, not even wearing boots. You know, I'm, like, completely unprotected other than just by, you know, my nice clothes and my gold, uh, of which he has plenty, and gems, green ones, of course. Um, yes, I mean, we definitely see that. He's described as a head higher and more than the tallest person in Arthur's court. So, I mean, given that and the half-Etin thing, I'd put him at, like, no more than, like, 7'6", probably. I mean, he's huge, but, like, just above man's stature, I would say. Again, it's, it's, he's, 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 he's literally head and shoulders above everybody else, but it's not like Arthur's knights all come up to his navel or something. He's, <laughs> he's, he's uh, noticeable. Even if he weren't bright green, he would be noticeable in a crowd. Um, but, of course, with the greenness, he's very noticeable. Will? horse Right. Yeah, his horse would be pretty crazy. If you think it's weird for him to ride his horse straight into Arthur's hall and up to the (laughs) feasting table, it's not. We do this all the time uh, in the Middle Ages. You don't need to take your shoes off. You don't even dismount. Just ride on in uh, to the court. Um, I mean, there's a really funny moment. It's designed to be a really funny moment, but there's a really funny moment in Cratian's Percival. When Percival rides his horse straight into Arthur's court, and he accidentally, like, when he tries to turn his horse to go out, his horse, like, knocks Arthur's hat off, and, like, hilarity and but anyway it's like perfectly normal to ride your uh to to ride your um horse into the court so i know that's even funnier for the people who took arthurian lit because percival is really hilarious but uh fun fun memories of percival the idiot riding his horse into arthur's court but not an idiot the immensely almost indescribably naive and simple-minded percival anyhow um I, I, sh- I should probably actually let you go, but uh, we, will, we will resume with the Green Knight and look at his, uh, his little Christmas game that he would like to play with, you know, whoever. Okay, for next time, read the second fit of the poem. Make sure to pay special attention to the description of Gawain's shield, especially to the passage discussing his connection with the number five. Really, really, it's important. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.